Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. <clears throat> Three, two, and Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like sports, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to State Farm. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Uh, unexpected, well, not unexpected that Avery Bradley did not want to go with the Lakers to the Orlando bubble. Not criticizing him. Totally get it. Read more about Avery Bradley. You'll get it too. Uh, not unexpected that they would sign J.R. Smith, but I thought it was a bit, bit unexpected uh, that a couple analysts said there's no real difference between Avery Bradley and J.R. Smith. That was unexpected. Get a teammate like J.R. Smith who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. Plan. couple life advice emails at the end of the pod. Kyle, checking in with Kyle. How are you doing today, buddy? Pretty good. I saw our old pal Mark Titus last night. We all had masks. It was weird. We took a picture with masks. Also weird. You guys go out hard? Good. No, no. I, I stayed uh, for one. Uh, two beers. Yeah. Hey, paid. That was nice. Tape paid. Okay, good. Good stuff all the way around. Because I knew I didn't want to jam up your Friday. Because when we were texting, you said you had some stuff to do, social stuff. And I was really happy for you. And, you know, I know you're being safe because we don't want anybody anti-Kyle here on the podcast. But I I was I was aware of what the possibilities could be. So I was like, look, you know, we'll see what time we get this thing taped on Friday. Because Friday is usually not the day we do this, but that's the day we were able to do this. Because, uh, like I said, life advice at the end. Dan Heron is going to talk a little baseball with us for about over 30 minutes. Heron now in the front office of the Arizona Diamondbacks. We'll get him talking some stories and what to expect with baseball's return. And that's where I start, okay? Baseball's back. And you are what? You are angry it took this long? Fair. You were indifferent because you already hated it? Or I guess that's not really indifferent if you hate the game and you don't care it's even coming back and you just made fun of it the whole time during this public display of not being able to figure it out? Okay, I get that one too. But there's probably a lot of you just going to throw it on. Now, the problem is baseball should have been back before, let's say, what, a week before the NBA gets this thing rolling? And I don't know how much crossover there is between NBA and baseball fan. I'd imagine there's probably more crossover between the NFL and the NBA fan, but who cares? Whatever. We got this thing back and I still really like baseball. And I always thought it was going to happen. There's a specific reason why I thought it was going to finally work out no matter what version of what we have. We're going to get to that in a little bit because there was a couple of reporters that were actually saying like, as ah, it's probably over, it's probably doomed. I'm like, okay, then it's definitely coming back now because remember the rules when you're on television, it sounds a lot better. If you're an opinion person in sports saying, it's the death of baseball, and I'm now going to write the verbal obituary, and it's never coming back. Whoa, that's a good clip. Makes a really good video. Good sound bite. Let's play that on a radio show a little bit later today. Or you could be on the desk and say, eh, I'll probably figure it out. And that's not as exciting, but it's the accurate one. It's the where, uh, I would say it's the lane that I've been in this entire time. So let's take a close look at what we have, because look out, folks. I had the internet last night, and I looked up some baseball stuff. We got 60 games, normal playoffs. Thank God. Good on that a little bit later. But what does 60 games mean? Baseball's weird. You can have bad teams put together a decent 60 games. And, you know, could a team go 40 and 20? Sure. But I think a lot of these teams are going to be right around 500, 35 to 25. And then you're going, think how, think how little the the discrepancy could be look at how the playoff chase ends now in september with the advancement of you know the different kind of playoff alignments they have and i don't like some of the extra game stuff but it all has been really really exciting the last few years of what we've seen and you know more than the last five years of what we've gotten out of the baseball playoffs they're incredible incredible scenes finishes and all sorts of drama and it scares me a little bit that the product has been great in the postseason and it's not really helping the rest of the months but if you look at, and I did this, I look back at some of the worst teams in baseball, and they're like all over the place. But all right, Toronto. Toronto at one point was 29 and 52, and then they went 22 and 20 over a 42 game stretch. That's a 67 win team that played two games over 500 for 40 games. Um, San Francisco, you ask. All right, here you go. Last year, 26 and 38 at one point, and then ended up at 55 and 53. So they went on that massive stretch. So that's a 44 game stretch where San Francisco played 29 and 15 baseball. They were a 77 and 85 team. Baltimore, folks, I tried the best I could find from their stretch is 14 and 13. That was an awful, awful baseball team. Remember Seattle last year? Again, smaller sample. They started the year 13 and 2. Remember all those Seattle tweets? They were 25 and 35, and that was a bad baseball team. How about this one? 
Miami was 10 and 31 on May 15th. Then they stretched it to 41 and 63. That's a bad baseball team that from Miami, that's a bad baseball team that from the middle of May to the end of July played 31 and 32 baseball. That's crazy. And then you have Detroit, who was actually 18 and 20. And if you forgot how many games Detroit won last year, I don't blame you because I did too. The Tigers won 47 games, and I couldn't find anything that was 30 and 30 over a 60-game stretch. But over 40, they were two games under 500. So we could have some really weird stuff. Now, you could have a Cy Young winner be 6-4. and four. You could have with the second base being occupied in extra inning games, the unintended part of that is we could just have a walk fest and all these extra innings things, but I'm not sitting here clamoring for more extra innings, even though I used to like it when I watched the games. I can also understand that basically these managers now don't even want to play them because they'd rather not burn out their, they'd rather take the loss that day than burn out their arms for an entire week. At least that's what they tell us all the time. If somebody hits 400, no thank you. By the way, nobody's hit 350 since Josh Hamilton like 10 years ago. We've had four years over the past four years, excuse me, five hitters have hit 20 home runs over the first 60 games. So look at maybe 20 being your leading home run number. And then there's all sorts of other things, how you're going to use your roster with 30 to 28 to 26. You're going to call up different players and how you're going to use your bullpen. We're going to ask Heron about some of that stuff a little bit later, but I don't know if this is going to grow the game. Will this grow the game? A shorter version? Cause I'd heard that for years. Oh, the baseball season is just too long. And as I've said, Every time, why would less of something you don't like make you like it more? It doesn't make any sense. Ah, oh, The Office. Yeah, I'm referencing The Office again. That shows, eh, I don't know, 26 episodes, 23 episodes a season. Not for me. Oh, but 12 you'd lock in? 12, it's your, it's your kind of humor? Like, you either like it or you don't. So I don't know whatever version of this shortened season that we have that all of a sudden people are going to go, you know what, I really like this 60-game thing. It works out. Here's an idea. If 61, 62 is too long for you, pick it up after 62. Pick it after after 100. If you love baseball in a 60-game season, there's all sorts of places you can look at MLB standings. I'll send you links, and you can find where the teams are after 100 games, and then you can start watching the last couple months. So I know people are mad about baseball, but as I said off the top, you're in a few different categories. If you're mad and you didn't like it, you were never coming back to begin with. And think how you get mad at different people in your life. If you have a friend, somebody that you want to be friends with long-term, you've probably gotten mad at them or they've gotten mad at you. And one of you got over it at some point. That's usually the way things work. Now, if you have no relationship with the person and something made you mad, you probably got over it or you just don't like the thing or the person long enough to kind of hold that long-term grudge. And I'm guilty of that with a couple of different things, right? And then there's some things like, say you're married and your husband and your wife has a kid with a neighbor. That's going to sting for a little bit longer. That's probably not going to be something you're going to get over immediately. But if you liked baseball and you've been mad the first few months, you're probably going to get over this whole thing. And there's one last thing that I did want to bring up, and that is how much should the winner of 2020 in baseball celebrate? First off, guys are going to celebrate. You give anybody an excuse to celebrate. A Cinco de Mayo wasn't even a thing when I was a kid. And now people are like asking for the day off. Granted, this year wasn't as good, but maybe next year we'll get them in 2021. What will it mean for the winner? Now, my point would be you're going to go ahead and celebrate. Now, I don't think you can do this thing where it's like, hey, you know what? Maybe just a couple white claws. Go out early, call it an early night, kind of see where the night goes. But yeah, just, you know, maybe a mango in there. But we're just going to, you know, it's going to be a real easy one. I got stuff to do the next day. You're going to ease into it. Some of you would prefer some sort of muted celebration because it doesn't feel as real. And you're right, it's not going to feel as real, but it will feel real to those guys that go through it and win whatever version of this is. I'm not saying you have to go ahead and order a World Series champion hoodie for your favorite team. But if you do, no one should give you shit. Okay, uh, we got Dan Heron, now a pitching strategist for the front office of the Arizona Diamondbacks, 13 years in the bigs, couple all-star appearances, and uh, he's going to join us now. But my first thing once we saw the whole plan was I started digging through, as I mentioned at the open of the pod, like 60 games and how many bad teams have had decent 60-game runs. Like That's just the way baseball works is you, you put together a couple months where you're maybe playing above what you are. How different do you think this could be and, and maybe just maybe having a couple wildcard teams in there that no one would have expected? I think that's the, the first thing you think of is that, you know, a bad team could get in. But um, 
I do think that the sense of urgency will be way different just because uh, these games, I mean, every game is like almost worth what is equivalent to like a series. So um, I think the sense of urgency is just going to be totally different. And I think that, you know, you, you could see, you know, after whatever the dog days of August in a regular season, once you get to September and the good teams start to need, need games bad, they start winning games. And I think just from the get-go, it's, I mean, it's, it's just going to be a different kind of intensity, although there's no fans, but um, every game is just going to be so important. So I, I just don't see that really happening. I, I what I do think is that what's going to be interesting is I, I just feel like a lot of teams are going to land around 30 games, you know, winning 30 games. And just, I mean, we see in a 162 game season, how, messy it gets with you know ties and tiebreakers and, and what could happen i just think that it, things could get real crazy with a lot of teams tying for wild card spots and stuff yeah we know that it's not you know anybody that's played like you have over a decade you don't there's just no football mentality you don't come in being like yeah this is you know let's get these guys like maybe maybe a big series against a rival there towards the end so that mentality be kind of interesting to see in the teams especially the ones that expect big things of themselves but you know, whether it's the bullpen and how you'd use that, how aggressive you would get with never sitting guys. Let's start with a bullpen and kind of staffs. Like how different do you think it could be in maybe using a bullpen guy far off, far more often than you normally would, because you're not worried about the six months or bullpen starters or not giving a guy an extra day's rest, even though you're worried about where everyone's arm is going to be with the lead up to this. But it just feels like teams are gonna have to be, as you said, just more aggressive with this instead of just saying, Hey, we'll ease into it and see where we're at in August. Well, yeah, and that that plus um, the rosters are going to be expanded uh, from the get-go, so there's going to naturally be more relievers. Um, so I think it's maybe a good time for the you know the three batter minimum. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're still implementing that, so um, that should make things that that was already going to make things interesting. And now with um, you know expanded rosters, there's only so much maneuvering you can do uh, with the three batter minimum. So things are going to be different, but Oh, absolutely. Guys are going to get, you know, I, I could see them going three or four days in a row because every game is so important. But, you know, to some also, you know, you never see a guy in April of a baseball season going, you know, three out of four or four out of five days. They, they really try to, you know, be cautious with the arms there. But with with there being no time, guys are going to be like they're going to be all amped up and wanting to pitch every day. And it's you know, who knows what it's going to lead to maybe this year or next year, how guys are going to feel or, I mean, injury wise too, you know, you always see, you, you typically see like in the spring training, a lot of pitchers pull obliques, you know, guys, position players pull hammies. I mean, that's just natural. And I mean, with a shortened spring training and the season's just jumping real quick, I, I, I'm interested to see how many guys are going to get hurt, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's, as you said, the expanded rosters, 30 to 28 to 26. I always felt like some of the, especially when it was, everybody's so prepared now. I mean, obviously some teams are always going to be better than others, but there was a time where I felt like the league was was split a bit in how much prep certain teams did. And I always, like, I don't have any math behind this, but I felt like the teams that were real big on prep did worse against the call-up from AAA because they just didn't see them. Like, they didn't have as much of a plan and I don't know if there's any benefit to the roster expansion where you feel like, let's throw somebody out there that nobody's really seen. I don't know if we're going to have a Chris Shelton situation where the first month of 06, he's like Barry Bonds. But yeah. it, it's just, it's always interesting how baseball kind of exposes you after a while. And I wonder if there's an opportunity for somebody that hasn't played that much in the bigs to put together a nice little run here because they're just not going to be exposed as they would over a normal season. Well, I think it's yes and no. So um, what I do with the Diamondbacks is I do a lot of advanced scouting and, and game planning and stuff. And uh, one of the most difficult times for me to, to plan is September, typically, because you get all the minor leaguers coming up. And you know, you're trying to figure out what these guys have done in, in AAA and AA. Um, but the good thing is now the data is is so good. The, the information you get on these guys is so good um, that by the time they get called up, you already know what, how you're going to attack these guys. So there, there is outliers. And, uh, you know, there was that dude for the Reds last year, um, right-handed hitter. I, I forget his name. Start with an A. 
kind of a crazy name, but he hit a bunch of bombs and uh, right when he came up and we faced him too. And I was kind of just looking to see uh, what he was hitting and he was hitting the same stuff he was hitting in the minor league. So I, I don't think he was, he's probably wouldn't get pitched the right way or, and we, when the Diamondbacks went into plan, we, we had done pretty well against him, but I, I just think that teams are so prepared now. And I can only speak for the one that I work with is that, that we'll be prepared for anything, but definitely going to be more difficult planning for these guys because you're, you're digging into minor league data, which, uh, you know, just takes a lot more time. And uh, so I'm not looking forward to that, but um, you know, it's, I think I'm ready. I'm ready for baseball. I, I've been sitting on my butt for three or four months now, so I'm ready to go. Is that Aquino, the the outfielder? Uh, yeah, that's him. Yeah. All right. He, I looked he, it I up. He hit, a, he hit a bunch of bombs. Yeah. He had 19 home runs. Yeah. Because I was yeah. I was going through Shelton. Shelton's always one of my favorites because, <laughs> like, oh six, you're like, what the hell is going on? And then he played 50 games the rest of his career. Like that was it. Yeah. Like once once April was over, I mean, he's a 400. I mean, I think his OPS was like almost one two. And uh-huh. you're going what? So, all right, I want to talk about the your job as, as you'd mentioned because I've I've sat with a couple guys that do what you do, and it is unbelievable. The I don't even know if people truly understand. Like we can all look at math and numbers and say, hey, here's a hidden thing where his you know defensive numbers behind him means that he's more likely to come back and pitch better. But you haven't figured that. Like that used to be really cool when you would first understand like some of the dips numbers and that kind of stuff. But is it? almost obsessive though because i still feel like you have to have the right mindset to take the information that you guys find like you'll find the hole in a hitter and then to apply it but then understanding each pitcher every athlete's mindset is different where it's like look i i don't want to be going out there thinking about a seven pitch sequence to every single Mm -hmm. guy for six innings man exactly and you know for me it's almost like a video game and i feel like once I retired from baseball, I really, I, I missed the adrenaline. I missed the competitiveness so much. Um, and so having this opportunity with Arizona where I'm doing a lot of advanced scouting and game planning and helping our starting pitchers along uh, has been great for, for them and for me too, because I feel like I'm still a part of the, of the game. So, yeah, I mean, we, you know, I worry, it's not just myself. We have a team of people that are working to put put together as much information as we can. And um, I think the the benefit for me is having played for a while. I, you know, I fortunately I get the respect out of pitchers right away, and I'm able to get you know my point across a little bit easier than it may be for you know some you know 25 year old kid that's you know super smart, but he has a tough time relating to to, to baseball players. And and like you had kind of mentioned is. A lot of it is understanding what a what a pitcher can do and how much information a guy can take in. I mean, um, I've played with and worked with uh, Zach Greinke for for years and years. He's on the Astros now, but he was the funnest guy to work with because I I mean I I broke down hitters. I mean we were going through. It, I was filtering so much information to him that um, I I thought his head would explode, but he was able and he would get on the mound and he would do it he would do the scouting report to a t and he just knew exactly um exactly what he wanted to do with guys whereas a lot of you know some guys especially guys coming up through the minor leagues it can be kind of overwhelming so um you're going to give them more of a basic game plan where you really want to you know focus on their strengths and but i think that the that pitchers take the leap when they're able to really attack a hitter's weakness you know not just their not just pitch to their strengths I can't believe you brought up Grinky because I was actually going to bring him up because I, I have intel on him. He's probably one of my favorite guys I've ever heard stories about. And there was a... You should try, was to, a, try to get him on the pod sometime. There's, <laughs> there's about a zero 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 point you know, chance that he would ever come on. No, I'm not even going to waste waste the DM on that one. But <laughs> yeah. there's two stories and I, they're both they're both funny. Like they're, they're perfect Grinky stories in that they were going through... Like, so I knew somebody that was in the room and they were going through like approaches and he'd be like, well, why don't you guys just like, you know, bend a two seamer away or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just paraphrasing the whole thing. And they were like, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then there was another hitter and he's like, oh, well, what you want to do is like, get a, get up in there and like 95. He's like, and then just paint away too. And everybody's like looking at him going, you're the only guy in the room that can do any of these things that you're talking yeah. about. Like, yes, great plan. And then the other Grinky one was apparently he went up to another pitcher and he didn't do it to be a dick. He just was like, I can't believe you don't give up more home runs. 
And the guy mm -hmm. was like, what? He goes, yeah, it's so easy to pick the ball. Like I could figure out when I've hit against you. He's like, I could totally figure out like exactly what you were throwing me. He's like, I'm surprised you don't get shelled. And the <laughs> yeah, he, has no, he has no filter at all. So, you know, if, if you don't know him, it, it can come off pretty harsh. Um, yeah. But the dude's amazing. I mean, one of the, one of my favorite stories just with, in terms of my, my work and working with him is that I, I think we were playing the Brewers, I believe it was last year, two years ago, um, facing Yelich, I remember. And we had gone over a specific pitch that was good to him um, prior to two strikes. And once you got to two strikes, it turned into being a bad pitch. And we were in a huge spot of the game. And he had thrown that certain pitch a couple times during the count and got there. And the catcher had called it. And he said yes to it with two strikes, which we, we knew that we didn't want to do it. And he came set and he stepped off and you could see that he was like thinking. And then he got back on the mound. The catcher called, called that he shook and he shook to a different pitch and he ended up punching him out, which it was just, it was amazing to see like just the, what was going through his head and being able to execute the pitches. The, the dude is unreal. Who's the best right now? I mean, I'm sure you're probably not. You're thinking of your own experience, your own prep versus the outcome. But who's the best now as far as hitting of maybe people thinking they've figured out a way to get him out and he adjusts quicker to it than anybody else? There, there's, there's still guys. I mean, guys that I just really struggle with even just to find zones. I mean, just I, off the top of my head, you know, going through Dodger stuff, Justin Turner. Uh, which is which is just amazing because I remember facing him when he was on the Mets and he was he was no good. I mean, I think he got released and ended up signing. And he's turning into one of the toughest outs in baseball. I mean, talk about a guy with minimal minimal holes, um, and he just kind of he comes to mind. And you know, going throughout the league, I mean, you you can. You know the the Rockies guys. It, it's always tough game planning and and. Uh, and Coors Field, and you know, now with ten games being played, I'm kind of seeing how those are going to play out. Are we going to get five and five? Or I was hoping it would be more like, you know, maybe we get the seven at home and they get three on the road, something like that. You know, because uh, Arenado and Trevor Story, those guys that seem to to kill us every year. So is that true? Because I know you. I think you started to come in like people are like, wait a minute, this guy's got like a great personality when you went on one of those first Twitter just and it wasn't like any kind of tirade. You're just like, all right, here's some <laughs> thoughts. You would look that far out to see if you had to pitch in Colorado. Like you'd have pre anxiety a month out. Absolutely. Yeah. I I, I would plan out my next five starts. You can kind of see with the off days too. And there was ways that you could or I mean, that I I should say I shouldn't say you that I could maneuver the schedule to to miss Colorado. You know, if there's a say, if there was an off day and I was going to get pushed back a day um, and it would it would make me land in Colorado. Well, if I didn't, if I was able to bump forward after the off day and switch spots with some guy like three weeks out, I, it would line me up to miss Colorado. So, you know, I may I may go into the manager's office and say, hey, I don't need that extra day that's coming up. I, I prefer staying on turn and going on five days. He'd say, oh, okay. I mean, you know, if I, this was when I was real good, when I was making all-star teams, I could do that. Um, and if he said, okay, yeah, if you're feeling good, and then it would, it would line me up to, you know, miss Colorado. But I may have done that once or twice. So no one ever picked up on it? No. But you know what? I think of it, I think it's, um, it's actually a good thing for the team, though. I'm, I'm taking it for the team. You don't want me to pitch in Clearsfield. I was a fly ball pitcher. So really, I was doing a good thing for the team, if you think about it. That's good. Yeah, we went from selfish yeah. to uh, to team first. That was that was a yeah. good transition there. Do you there think you, you would looking back? You know, do you think you would have been better than looking at the game the way you do now? I do. Um, so my my and I don't mean that. By the way, just in case, like we've never talked. I don't want to think you think like look three three all star team two top seven Cy Young finishes, which is really no one ever brings up. No, and you know what? Uh, the lowest. This is a, a a part in my take, Barstool Sports. So sorry, I don't know if that I'm crossing lines here, but I'm not familiar with it. We're we're okay. We're gonna uh, we're making a Hall of Fame push for me. I don't know if you've heard about it, but I have the lowest ERA in, in the history of baseball at the World Series, but the just the minimum of four and two thirds innings. That's it. Um, so there's that, but. Uh, no, man. <laughs> Sorry, I got sidetracked. <laughs> no, that was good. That was a good campaign. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's that's a great number there. I don't even know if anybody's allowed to say, it, but that's like that's like you know you're like a limited series shilling. 
there you go. No, you were talking about data, and you know what? Early on in my career, when I was making All Star games, I I looked at nothing. I just was going on sheer skills, and I, you know, luckily I had the stuff to get by. But later in my career, the data really started picking up, and I started getting a good grasp for it. Really, when I was in um, L.A. Uh, with the Dodgers in 2014, I was learning a lot from A.J. Ellis, from Kershaw, and Grinky was there. Um, they'd be a really good pitching coach, and. I was able to uh, learn even more from a guy with the Cubs. He actually does kind of what I do with the Cubs now. So I was really able to to learn and, and use it all. But, you know, I needed it at the end of my career. My skills were nothing. My fastball was dipping below 88, and it was tough to get by. But I was still managing to, to get guys out even, even my last year where I was, you know, throwing 85, 86. I know – I'll never forget, not just because I don't know why it was really early in my career and I had gotten a heads up from somebody that I was close with about the A's breaking up that rotation. And I was like, why would they get rid of those guys? And they just thought Hudson ended up having more of a career, but they were kind of right on Mulder. Like they were, they were worried about Mark's hip and they get you. And I'll never forget Derek Barton because Gammons, I think at one point described Barton as like a more patient pull host. Which was like the most like to be to this day. We're like, oh man, this guy's gonna be nuts. And it was just oh, no. you know the way we talk about prospects and everything. But was that something like it was weird because you're following up all of those studs with Oakland and you're in this great baseball city in St. Louis. Not that Oakland isn't a great baseball city too, but St. Louis is just kind of in a different level. I don't know how you felt about it at the time. You're a West Coast guy, but that had to be kind of. Look, everybody knows you get traded. We know it's pro sports. There's great things. There's struggling. There's different things that most people don't understand. But what was that like that young? Well, one of the, the toughest parts to get about being traded is just the expectations. And like at, at that point in my career, I had I was a starter in 2003 uh, with the Cardinals. And then in 2004, I, I didn't do very good in, three, in 03. And then in 04, I pitched um, the majority of the year in the minor leagues, got called up as a reliever in August. So, and I did pretty well as a reliever, then I get traded. So I, w- I had never really established myself as a, as a major league pitcher, major league starting pitcher, at least uh, when I got traded to the A's in 05. So, um, you know, I was nervous. I, I was nervous because I was traded for a guy like Mark, Mark Mulder and I, the, ex- the expectations were there for me to, to do well. And I got off to a horrible start in 2005 uh, with the A's and, I hit a crossroads in my career. I had a couple of good people with with me and with the A's. Barry Zito really helped me along because I, I had never, I, I mean, I was almost to the point where I gave up and, you know, I wanted to go to the minor leagues because I was embarrassed. And uh, he kind of helped me through it and I was able to turn the 2005 year around. And from then on, I, I, I had a pretty good amount of success. That, that bumpiness early on, but you're just, you, you can tell from your social media stuff, like you're a really self-aware guy. You're almost self-deprecating too much sometimes. It's like, you know, because there's there's times where I'll, I'll be around somebody who's really successful. And I think like, hey, you don't have to constantly like, like knock yourself down. You've done some really good things. Yeah. But I, I'm i always envious sometimes, like with especially with basketball players. I'll be like, okay, it's great to be confident. But if you're too confident, then you're like fucking everybody else up too. Like it's like, look, like yeah. there's two guys that take shots before you take shots, and you don't you don't see the order of how this works. But if you go back to high school and you're really good, you're getting recruited, you end up at Pepperdine, three years there. You had a teammate who was a first round pick, you were a second round pick. Did you have this epiphany prior to that where it's like, whoa, I'm actually good? Like I'm going to be a pro? No, never. Really, I, I I got to when I was in high school. I had one goal and it was to try to get a scholarship i just thought i i never even thought of getting drafted i never thought i was going to be a professional baseball player i wanted to get a scholarship i was so happy i got a scholarship and even my fresh freshman year at pepperdine um i ended up having some success and um it was only but i never i still never thought of myself as being drafted or drafted high and then my sophomore year i kind of came into my myself like my my body i started you know, putting a little bit of weight on and throwing a little bit harder. And then, you know, I, I started seeing the realization that I might be able to get drafted. And once that came, I was like, okay, now I just want to get drafted. If I get drafted and get that, that paycheck and then I could do whatever I want the rest of my life, you know, and I get drafted. I, I got a decent amount of money and, and still, I always had a lot of self doubt in myself. Um, and I think that is 
obviously not the greatest thing, but it also made me prepare, I think, better than a lot of people because I, I, I never wanted uh, the work to be the issue. So I always work really hard. I do a lot um, in between starts and in the off season, I went crazy with throwing and long toss and working out. So I always felt like I was preparing myself because I, you know, I, I had a little bit of self-doubt. So I wanted to make sure that I was doing everything I could before I stepped onto the mound, that, you know, to prepare myself for that game. Do you think the toughest year was was going to Miami for you? Um, no, the toughest the toughest year that was tough because um, I knew I was at the end of my career with the Dodgers, and I had signed a a one year deal with an option that I pitched enough innings to to kick in the option. So I was stoked that I was thinking it was going to be my last year in 2015, and I get to be home and play for the Dodgers, and then. They went through a shuffling in the front office and traded me, and I threatened to retire, even though I was—I I had no intentions of retiring. Um, but <laughs> how do you, uh, can you take us through like the, the? How does that happen? Where you go? Okay, I know I don't want to, but now I've got to play this out this way. Like, take us through the timeline of threatening a fake retirement. Well, what's crazy is that this is 2015, and I, I learned that I'm being traded on Twitter, of course. Um, so. Uh, you know, I immediately checked with my agent and he said, yeah, it's, it, I think it's true. And I, I told him, I, I can't believe I, I'm going to have to go 3000 miles away again for my family. Um, you know, I, I'm going to tell them I don't want to pitch. For, I, I don't want to pitch for them. I don't want to leave. It's not because of them. It's just because I don't want to leave home at this point in my life. And, you know, uh, so I let them know that I, I maybe have let, let a media member or two know that, um, that, you know, I just wasn't. I wasn't thinking I was ready to pitch on the East Coast again at this point in my career. It got out there and it didn't work. So, um, and I wasn't leaving that last paycheck. That's yeah, the sure. last option. I mean, we're uh-huh. talking what eight figures. So it wasn't like oh, you're yeah. just gonna give it up. Oh no chance, no way. I knew it. You know, I had pitched. I I, I had been a bargain. I mean, of course, I made plenty of money. I'm not saying that. I had been a bargain for a good portion of my career, um, but at the end. I was expensive for what I was, what I was featuring, no doubt. And, um, I felt like I I didn't feel bad about that. I I felt like I deserved it. So I wanted to take it, but going back to the first part, the toughest year was going to Washington, the nationals, because again, cross country, my family stayed at home and I was awful that year. It was my first year where I really, really struggled and being alone, living so far away from home and being so shitty on TV and, and I felt bad for myself, for my family watching. That was that was rough. Were you a good teammate? I think I was a good teammate. I I tried to treat. I try. I tried to pride myself in in treating people the same, whether I had won ten games in a row or lost ten games in a row, um, because I had seen how other people had had handled themselves. Some, you know, when I was coming up, a guy like Matt Morris, Woody Williams, these guys, how they handled themselves. Or no, you can tell if you know they were on a, making on a path for an All Star game or had the worst month of their career. So I always admired that, and I wanted to treat people like they did. Yeah, I wouldn't. I didn't have like some story. I didn't have some dirt on you or anything like that. I just no. I, I know. Yeah. I was wondering. Yeah, I know. Um, because different different guys when you're struggling. Like I don't. I don't know that I blame. I mean, the pitcher thing is always tough. Like it's one thing to be a hitter slump, but it's like okay, everybody here, your day's coming up, and you haven't hit anybody awful. out. It's going to be the worst feeling. Like because the the hitting slump thing, it's get to the park every day eventually you know you're going to get a hit but yeah i can't imagine the four days off in between when it's just not working out and sitting around and yeah. waiting for your next turn on the flip side of that look it, it is also the greatest feeling of dominating and then going home or you know going to get grab a few drinks at the bar and then the highlights start coming up on mlb network and it's your game and you know you're about you know, three beers deep and you're kind of digging yourself on TV while, you know, the bar's watching. I have to admit that that feels pretty good on the flips on the, on the other side of that. If I get bombed, I don't watch TV. I don't, will not w- watch any baseball for the next, you know, couple days, no highlights. And I root for, I will, I'll root for all the other pitchers to get lit up too. <laughs> not on my team. No, no, I like, get that. I, it's always nice if I like, if I gave up like six runs in three innings, and you know i maybe i can i after the game i'm kind of passing through and i see another pitcher give up eight runs in two innings 
that might you know it might feel a little bit better like i'm not the only one so I was always shocked how many starters could still go out the night before their start. Like that always blew my mind. And when I lived in Boston, I remember it's kind of, I don't want to be too, I don't know. I think I may have told the story before, but my buddies, we all lived in town and the marathon would happen. And then the Red Sox would play that 11 a.m. Monday game. And I remember we were at this thing and a guy that was pitching the next day was there. And we're like, (laughs) you're not even, you're not even, this isn't even a night game tomorrow. And he got shelled. And we were pissed and we were pissed because we were like, yeah, it was kind of cool. This guy stopped by this thing. But I mean, that's 11 a.m. start and he got shelled and we couldn't believe it. I just I think sometimes pitchers are almost more inclined to want to go out more because more often than not, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. So when I when I was pitching, I never liked to to drink um, the night before, even two nights before. I didn't like to drink too much, especially early on in my career, even in the middle of my career. Now, toward the later part of my career, I will, I wouldn't say I would be going out, but I did enjoy a glass or two of wine, maybe, you know? Uh, well, yeah, you said just, that. Yeah. I don't... Yeah. I, would, I, would sell, I would sell it to myself. I, I would just like, you know, this is for me to relax and, you know, I want to enjoy it and just kind of, you know, mellow out, chill out. Um, and one of the, you know, one of my favorite things to do and was, so say, because you're talking about day game after a night game. So if, if, if it was a night game and... Uh, where I was pitching the next day and it was a one o'clock game the next day pitch starting pitchers are have the option to leave the game early so right. you can I, I was able to leave I usually leave around eight o'clock so around the you know third or fourth inning I would leave and I you know I'd go I'd, I'd get a reservation at a you know a nice steakhouse and I, of course I'd enjoy a glass or two of wine and those are some of my favorite nights actually because I'd end up having I'd be sitting at the bar and watching our team play all while having a you know, a 10 ounce center cut filet with the, you know, a nice, uh, Oakey, uh, Cabernet. There you go. Or a guy who really followed the team wondering if you got cut or something. Like, why that, is he here? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's do some rapid fire here. Uh, you, do you know how many guys you hit? Mm, no, no. For your career. Do you want to guess? Um, yeah, I would guess 30. 67 what wow that's a lot should i double check that because now i'm worried i have it wrong i guess, you no, said, I guess you're right yeah, yeah three yeah you're right i guess 13 years hitting the, yeah yeah 67 yeah, I, my, my guess was low yeah oh six your fourth year and you drilled 10 guys the reason i bring it up you say you only hit five <laughs> to seven guys on purpose what's the one you remember yes. the most Ooh. um there's so there's a couple of good ones. One maybe a too too long of a story, but no, I'll, go for I'll it. Try. I, I, okay, so it was a uh, it was a scorching hot day in Texas, uh, playing the Rangers. The last day of the season, I believe, in two thousand and ten, maybe eleven, not sure. Scorching hot. The Angels had. I was with the Angels. We had won the division a lot of. I don't know how many years in a row, three or four years in a row, and Texas won the division that year. So we, I pitched, I don't know why I was pitching that game. I, I had like 235 innings going into that game and we weren't in the playoffs, but I social sent me out for you know, 120 pitches and 120 degrees, but that's a different story. Anyway. Um, so I'm out there and I'm already bitter that I'm out there because it's scorching. I want to have a good, you know, I want to finish the year off good. And Texas, um, they, they start taking their guys out one by one. So they had their normal starting lineup go out there. And then after they, Ron Washington would call time and take like whatever Vladimir Guerrero out and take, you know, Elvis Andrews, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis Andrews, whatever. And he would run off the field shortstop. And this is like, so the whole game had to be delayed. Meanwhile, I'm, so our team was pissed off. And actually, I think this, it was Vladimir Guerrero. So Vladimir Guerrero comes up, up to bat. He's the DH. They call time. Ladies and gentlemen, Vladimir Guerrero, they pull him out of the game. And I, we have had enough. I've had enough. Like, I, I, we had to sit here and watch nine guys get pulled off the field. Uh, I'm, I'm already bitter. So they replace him. I, I'm not 100% sure it may have been Matt Train or something. Poor guy. I'm cursing at Clint Hurdle in the dugout. He's the bench coach that this is all bullshit. And he steps up to the plate, and I just drill him right between the numbers because I, I had had enough. And I, you know what? I didn't, 
I didn't get tossed. I don't know what happened the rest of the game, but I do remember that. That really pissed me off. I the other, don't know. The other much. ones are just uh, the other ones are just guys pimping homers off me. Which, dude, I, I gave up so many homers. I mean, come on, like you know, I've seen it all. So, uh, you know, you could pimp one. That's good. As long as you've you know hit like two hundred homers off me, you could pimp it. But, um, you know. No, that makes sense. Um, I don't. I don't know how much you know about me, but my first year in the business, I was with the O2 Trenton Thunder, um, calling games. Sometimes also doing a lot of other stuff. Um, but I've after that year, and I, I tell friends, I go, it's the most valuable thing I've ever done in my career, at least as far as understanding athletes, especially understanding baseball, because you guys invent ways to get pissed off about stuff. Like mm-hmm. you go zero to rage over the dumbest shit that I've ever seen, and. I think that's a baseball thing. I don't think it's anything specific other than you just kind of grow up in baseball and the outside world's like, what's wrong with these guys? And I'm not even as critical as saying this is just kind of how business is done and how they've always done it. So for us to try to say that they're wrong, like we, we, like we may think like, yeah, you can't really do. Yeah. But that's just kind of the way it works. And it's a hard thing to explain to people, but I explained it much, or at least I understood it much better after a year in the minors. Baseball players have a lot of time on their hands. the 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 thing about the thing about a baseball season is it's it's unlike any other because of the journey that you go through. You know, with with like the accomplishment of winning a division after basically eight months, a two month spring training, and then a six month grind of traveling everywhere and and you know withstanding injuries and stuff. The the feeling of winning. I mean, I'm sure it's great. You know, for other sports too, but just the camaraderie you have and you know the shit you get into over that long a period of time is just, it brings you together. So yeah, baseball players are wired a little different. Do you, is there anybody that you owned for your career that made no sense? Somebody that was great. And for whatever reason you got him out. Mm, I think Pedroia. Yeah. I think I want to say he has the most advance off me without a hit. So I, I, I want to say like over 16 or something like that. No kid. So not a laser show. No, I don't know how. I always felt like he stood really far off the plate and he couldn't reach the ball if I if I was able to locate it away. But but I, obviously I was locating away then. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Wait until he hears yeah. this. How pissed he's going to be? He's going to be. Uh-oh. He's going to ask you to come back. Um, yeah. Last one here. Have you ever missed a flight? Never missed a flight. Never missed a bus. Never late to the field. Never. Thirteen years in, in baseball. No. Never, I wasn't late to this this uh, Zoom call either. I was ten minutes early. You were early. Yep, that's how I roll, man. We went we went out uh, like if if we got dinner reservations at six thirty, I'm there at six twenty five. That's just the way I am. You could have played for Tom Coughlin. That's amazing there you stuff. Go. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate it, man. And uh, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are you down for doing a, a couple life advice emails there, Kyle? Okay. Sounds like you are. Sounds like you are. You can hit us up, lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Okay. This is from Luke. Hey, fellas. With my local gym opening up again for the first time in a few months, I was reminded recently of a theory I developed a while back. Long story short, I'm convinced that every bulky meathead type, I'm talking no neck, spends three plus hours in the gym every day. Well, that's overtraining, Luke. That's your first problem. Uh, Not you, but your buddies. Has at least one god-awful tattoo visible to the public. I've moved around quite a bit in my 23 years, and I'm convinced this is a universal truth. I think tattoo sleeves are cool, but what's with the huge compass on the forearm or Brock Lesnar's sword popping out beneath a peck on a cutoff? I kind of always liked that Brock Lesnar tattoo. You like the compass? You're a big uh, big nautical guy? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I just always, I, I, I mean, you see the, I have one tattoo and you fucking see what it is. Like, it's really hard for me to pin down something that, uh, to put on myself. So I'm just going to stick with the one, but I was, do you uh, regret, I mean, you just got that one shining podcast tattoo. Any regrets? No, I mean, no, not really. I have a tattoo, so I am a tattoo guy now, but I don't have a bunch of them. So it really makes you think before the next one though. So it'll probably be a while. I got to tell you, Kyle, I, I don't like your tone. I, I think you already sound like you're 90%. And that's that's low. That's <laughs> that's very low. This isn't about um, um, the tattoos are easy to make fun of, but these dudes always seem to have good-looking, athletic girls with them. Hmm, 
So my question for Ryan is whether he has one such tattoo or am I just making this up? So basically you just called me a shithead for about five sentences and then admitted this email is about me. Um, <laughs> also, given my lack of success with the ladies, should I go big show grizzly bear on my tricep to boost my game and show off my 120 pound bench or go a different route? I'm open to suggestions. That's uh, Luke from South Dakota. Haven't made it out to the Dakotas yet. One day, Luke. All right. A lot to go with there. Yes, I do think that there's that's a, that's an age thing though. There's an age thing, and we all know uh, the guy at the gym that has that like crazy fit girlfriend, and they're just workout buddies. So, Luke, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be the tattoo. If your bench is at 120, none of those girls are ever going to date you. You know, they've got like 50,000 followers on Instagram. No one can really quite figure out why. Maybe a kid pops up in like every seventh slide, but there's never a dude in it. But then if you really dig in, you're like, oh, this guy's. She's dating somebody and this guy, you know, is, is he's got a startup and some collagen protein thing. So there's, there's definitely like to ever have the athletic and I'm not even talking like, you know, the most beautiful women out there. I'm just basically saying like, there's a specific gym culture couple. And if your bench is at 120, I don't even, I mean, I think you already answered your own question. So it's not, it's just not about the tattoo. It's just not. Um, and I think there's going to be a time too. I know this seems shocking because I'll admit I don't have any tattoos. I see the sleeve and I see some guy's sleeves and I'm like, that's fucking cool. And I go, you know what? Be cool. Like sometimes I go, would I, yeah, would that be cool for me? I can dunk, check out my Instagram. Um, would it be cool if I got to see? Now it's too late. It's too late for me. I'm not getting it now because there's going to be a moment where dudes are going to be walking around and there's going to be guys in nursing homes with sleeves on. And I'm not talking like hospital wear. Okay. All right. All right. Final one. I think we're going to leave this guy's name out of it. 25-year-old basketball coach, college basketball coach, moved to LA for a year, now back in the Midwest coaching. Oddly enough, I went to Manhattan Beach once and saw you on the beach with what I assume was your dad or my really older buddy, I guess, um, but didn't want to bother you. Thank you for not bothering me and my dad, although I never, because somebody comes up and says hi, it's really easy to say hi. So um, actually, I shouldn't say thank you for not bothering me, unless my dad and I were like super heavy into some conversation, but probably weren't. And uh, whatever, man, shout out. Anyways, um, I make dirt money working on my master's only because you need to advance in coaching, but also have a longtime girlfriend who wants to take the next step and get married. I've sort of put in the time. Oh, I'm, I've sort of put the timeline of I'll keep this gig for a year after the season ends. I need to find a breakout move to make money, move up the ranks and probably get married. I'm not locked to anyone. Hell, I've moved to California alone, so bring it on. Okay, not totally sure what I'm even asking. I'm not sure either yet, but you're good at this stuff and you need someone to help talk this out because just bouncing stuff around in my head. Thanks, and I love the podcast. Really, this is about the girl more than it's the, the coaching thing. I don't know if you're good. I don't know if you have contacts. You know, I used to feel so bad when I would go to Orlando for those draft camps and I had a job that sucked i mean i was just flying down while i was making no money working in boston for all those years but i wanted to do it because i still wanted to be in the front office and i would watch other guys kind of go up and pitch themselves and it was so tough it's just really brutal it'd be some guy you know he would put on his nice polo he'd have you know basketball guys are always wearing sneakers and he'd have his maybe dockers on and he would go up and just anybody that would spend any time with you because if you were a coach you were able to get into this thing and a lot of guys that were lower level college coaches would just get access to kind of not really even watch the games. Like I would watch the games because I'd want to watch the draft stuff. But yeah, if, uh, Brian Colangelo, which actually I did talk to him at that one. I don't know why that name popped up because probably because I did. It was right before they had the Bargnani pick and I was like, hey, how's it going? And you're just, you know, you're trying to like, he's looking at you going, do you actually think I'm going to tell you whether or not I'm taking Bargnani? I was a little less seasoned back then, kids. So I wasn't even 30. Yeah. And uh I'd watch other guys do it. I'm like, it's just so desperate and you, you just reek of desperation trying to network here, but that's really the only way that you can do it. So what are you going to do? Like be prideful without a job. So <laughs> a lot of the college coaching stuff is, do you have access to guys that are more successful? Is there anybody that likes you? Can you keep recruiting them? A lot of the basketball stuff or front office stuff is recruiting the relationship. You may know the game cold. You may have the greatest eye for talent, 
But when I first wanted to work in a front office and another GM took me out to lunch and I thought like, oh my God, this is amazing. This guy's taking me out to lunch. Like I'm going to be working for this team in a year. And all he did was tell me how I wasn't going to work for him because he didn't really know that much about me. And he liked me and liked talking with me on the phone. But he's like, and this is a bigger lesson, honestly, where if you have access to somebody that has kind of the success and something that you want to do, just because you have access to him, it doesn't guarantee you anything. And when I was younger, I would always think, oh my God, like I met this guy and he's really successful. So that means like now I'm going to get a gig out of it. I mean, I feel bad sometimes if people reach out to me or younger people at ESPN. I'm like, I can give you advice. I can tell you how to navigate through things. I can set your expectations straight for what's real and what isn't. But I'm probably not going to ever be able to just get you a job. I, I just can't. Like I'd love to get my brother a job who makes music and I can't get him a job right now. I can't. I've tried a couple different things and I can't get the kid a job. So. <laughs> Back to your original thing, when, when I'd gone out to lunch with that GM, he goes, what you need to do is you need to recruit people that eventually are going to be running teams or possibly even have an ownership stake. You know, By the time, whatever age, and granted, my career went a different path, but it was really, really smart information because he had told me I recruited people that would be potential owners or I would work owners and then eventually I got in and that guy ended up being a GM for a really long time. So that's the part that you have to figure out what is realistic about what you think you could do. Now you may just get a really, really lucky break because that happens to a lot of us too, but you know, you don't, you're not lucky for 20 years, 30 years. So if you're really good at this, you know, somebody's going to figure out the other part where the girl is this, I've done the same stuff where I'm like, Oh, I can't be married now. And then I don't know, 20 years went by, but I can't be married now. I have to uh, make sure all of these sets, like I wanted to be the absolute turnkey husband. Seriously. Like I looked at myself as a piece of real estate where I, this is fucked up, but I wanted you to be able to like be handed the key, turn it and go, he's got his shit together. He's got his money straight. He's got a career, you know, he, he, all of these things. Cause I've had friends that are like, what happened there? He's like, oh my God. He goes, you know, I was about to marry this girl and she had 500 credit. And I'd be like, you broke up with a girl because of her credit score. He'd be like, dude, you know anything about home mortgages and all this kind of stuff? And I'd be like, well, yeah, I guess I do. This is a long, long time ago. The point is, is if you if you do this thing where you want all the timeline stuff to be checked off in perfect order so that the relationship has the best chance of if she's the one she doesn't care about any of that stuff like when i was explaining my approach to one of my best friends who's married he's happy he's got another kid on the way he's awesome and the reason his shit works is because he had said to me he's like hey are you what are you going to do man are you do you want a family like do you want to get married do you want to do any of these things i was like no i want to, I want to check every single box of everything I've ever wanted to do in my career. I want to have everything else straight and I want everything to be like perfect. And he's like, okay, well, first of all, that's none of that's going to happen. And I was like, well, I can get close to it. He's like, all right, cool. But wouldn't you have rather had, had somebody share in that with you? Like, that's the point, man, is somebody that you grow with along the path. So my point to you, man, sending the email in is if this girl is that important to you, and she feels like the one and you don't want to lose her because don't do the thing where you talk yourself into like, oh, I'll be fine. I just love basketball. And if I don't have her and then a month later, you find out she's dating somebody from home and you lose your shit. Don't do that to yourself because I've done that. Um, let her be part of the timeline and trying to figure out you navigating all of this stuff. So don't try to be turnkey. It's great in theory, but you can actually prevent yourself from building an even more stable relationship because somebody was there with you every step of the way. With that, I want everybody to have a great weekend. Please subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast. <laughs>